And we extend a special welcome to those worshiping with us online also. May our worship be pleasing to our Heavenly Father. There are no announcements at that time from council. If, we are, if you are able, please rise for your call to worship. Our call to worship this evening comes from Psalm 86, verses 11 through 13. Teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite, unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love towards me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Congregation, from where does your help come? And now hear God's reply. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's respond with the singing of Psalm 92, stanzas 1, 2, and 3. Father, this evening again, we come before you as our children, and we give you our thanks for your faithfulness and promises. 
We thank you, Lord, for walking with us each and every day. And we confess that you are with us each and every day. We proclaim that your promises are true and your goodness and your love never fails. And at this time, we come before you and lay our lives before you. May we honor, worship, and adore you with every fiber of our being. We proclaim that you alone are the Holy One, the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Your beauty and majesty are beyond our comprehension. In this service, we join with all those who, are worship, who worship and confess you as Lord from generations past and present, and with all the angels who sing in heaven of your greatness and splendor. Father, we give thanks again for the love which you shower upon us. We can read of the resurrection of your son and what it means for us today. We ask you for a blessing on the reading of your word and the preaching of your word. May what we hear today be taken up into our hearts and let these, these truths carry us in the days ahead. Father, in your son's name we pray, amen. The sermon which we will listen to this evening has been prepared by Reverend R. Bradenhoff. And our scripture today is taken from three passages in the New Testament, the Gospel of John, from Acts, and from 1 Peter. And let's begin with the Gospel of John, chapter 10. And we start our reading at verse 10. Sorry, verse 11. And there we read, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I laid it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. There was again a division among the Jews because of those words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? We then now turn to our second passage, which we read in Acts chapter 2. We start at verse 22. 
the Apostle Peter is preaching his infamous sermon there. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witness. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my, right, to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Our third passage that we read is from, the gospel, or from 1 Peter 3, starting at verse 13. Starting at verse 13, we go on through 22. That's the end of the chapter. Now there is no harm to you if you are zealous for what is good. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's, plan, good, God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us up to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which we went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, 
in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been, been subjected to him. Congregation, in response to what we, we have just heard, let us rise and sing hymn 32, stanzas 1, 2, 3, and 4. Sorry, no, I'm a little too far ahead of here. Um, let us respond with the reading of what we have just heard by the singing of Psalm 17, verses 1, 4, 1, 3, 4, and 6.
This evening, our text is taken from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 17, and that can be found on page 531 of your Books of Praise. It's also on the screens there. This evening, we'll be hearing a sermon about the resurrection of Christ. Lord's Day 17. How does Christ's resurrection benefit us? First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he could make us share in the righteousness which he has obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too are raised up to a new life. Third, Christ's resurrection is to us a sure pledge of our glorious resurrection. Brothers and sisters, we be nothing without the cross. Without the cross, there is no blood poured out to ransom. Without the cross, Jesus wasn't cursed and we're not blessed. So the cross has become a Christian symbol on Bibles and buildings and bracelets. Yet as important as it was, Jesus didn't stay on the cross forever. He died. He was buried, and even in the grave, he did not remain. The cross is empty because his grave is empty. He rose, and that is not something to take lightly because we would, where would we be without his resurrection? If Jesus hasn't risen, this worship service and all our devotion and worship would be a royal waste of time. That's not just my opinion either. Paul says it in this way in, in the first Corinthians, if Christ had not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Without the cross and without the resurrection, there's no salvation. Says Paul again, if Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sins. But he has risen and that's why we are here. And that's why we sing and pray. So it's not surprising that all, th- it's all three persons of the Trinity were involved in Christ's raising. Whenever God performs a major work for his people, it's a joint operation of Father, Son, and Spirit. 
Think of the masterpiece of creation. The Father was there, calling all things into being. Let there be light, he said, and there was light. But everything was created by the Father through the Son. For without him, nothing that has been, for without him was made, sorry, for without him, nothing was made and has been made. We read that in one in John chapter one. And the Holy Spirit was there too, hovering over the waters. Or think about the baptism of Christ. The triune God was there. For while Christ stood in the water, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove and the Father's voice sounded from heaven. That was the start of Christ's earthly work. Now at the resurrection, we come to what is essentially the end of his time on earth. And again, the trying God shows that he's intimately involved in this critical moment at, the, at work in great power and wisdom. And that is the theme from Lord's Day 17. We confess and rejoice that Christ is risen because of the promise of the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit through the authority of the Son. We confess and rejoice that Christ is risen in the first place because of the promise of the Father. If you told someone what happened to Jesus in the last days of his life, they might conclude that Jesus was was nothing more than a troublemaker. For Jesus did stir up the crowds. Think of the triumphal entry. And he did preach against Israel's leaders. Think of all his woes against the Pharisees. He also did claim to be a king. He even said so in front of Pontius Pilate, an envoy of Caesar. By the end, Jesus had a reputation of someone who caused unrest. Sensible people would have agreed that it be best to put him away for a little while, give him a time out. No need to kill him, though. That such thing happened is deeply unjust. People have said this for a long time, that Jesus suffered an unfortunate or even accidental death. They often claim that Jesus was just another Jewish rebel, and the history books say there were lots of them in those days, starting movements and gathering followers. He was just another rebel rouser who ended up dead. What does this mean for the saving power of the Christ? It's all an invention of disappointed disciples. And what does this mean for the empty tomb? It's simply the yearnings of frustrated followers. Don't we all do that, trying to make the best out of something bad? Even if our sporting legends or our national heroes have been disgraced by their cheating or some other scandal, we want to think the best about them. Of course, the disciples would say that Jesus arose. Otherwise, they have spent three years following a fraud. But in Acts 2, Peter sets the record straight. On Pentecost, he had a great opportunity to preach the gospel of Christ. This Jesus didn't do miracles, signs, and wonders on his own accord, but God did them through him. He was an instrument in God's mighty hand. Furthermore, when Jesus died, he wasn't just in the wrong place at the wrong time. This was no accident, no series of unfortunate events. 
Rather, Jesus was delivered by a determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. We read that in verse 23. All of it was God's plan from start to finish, from incarnation to resurrection. But Peter was preaching to a tough crowd. Many of the Jews believed a story that was first invented by the elders and chief priests. After the discovery of Jesus' body was no longer in the tomb, they had to think of an explanation. And and their story was that Jesus' disciples came during the night and stole him away. We read that in Matthew 28. In his sermon, Peter hits back against that unbelief. He says, just as Jesus was killed according to God's plan, so he was raised according to God's promise. Listen to his words. words, God raised him up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Jesus was not a teacher who was resurrected by his devoted students. No, God raised him from the dead. To prove this point, Peter turns to scriptures and David's resurrection words in Psalm 16. Long ago, David sang to God, you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. David was in serious trouble, but he held on to God's promise of life. The Lord is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. David knew that should death come to him, even the last enemy is not able to sever the bond between the father and his dear children. Psalm 16 was true for David and even more true for Jesus. For Peter points out how David died and was buried for his tomb is just down the street. David was a mighty and righteous king, but he still had to die. David believed in God's sure promise of resurrection, but he didn't get it to see its fulfillment, not yet. So Peter puts this Psalm into Jesus' mouth. Yes, he says Psalm 16 is actually Jesus' prayer to the Father, even as he enters the last day of his life and is lifted up on the cross. My God, you will not abandon me to the grave. Jesus could see the grave opening its ugly mouth, getting ready to receive him, but that wasn't the end. It wouldn't be, not if Jesus, not if Jesus finished job, for that was the agreement. The father had vowed to raise his son from the dead. He would restore his life if Jesus' obedience was perfect and his sacrifice was complete. No wonder Paul insists that Jesus must be out of the grave if we will be saved. If Jesus had failed in any way, his tomb would still be occupied because he'd still need to bear sin's curse. If Jesus had been imperfect in any respect, the cross would have been the last that he was ever seen alive. But Peter declares the good news of salvation. This Jesus God raised up, of which we are all witnesses. God raised him up, and so the Father vindicated all the suffering of his Son, 
God the Father declared that Jesus had made an acceptable sacrifice, holy and pleasing, that he fulfilled all righteousness. The resurrection means Christ drank every ounce of God's cup of wrath, enduring every second of eternal death. The Father kept his promise and freed his Son, his Son from the chains of death. The resurrection means the Father is well pleased with his Son, and in the same breath he declares that he's well pleased with us. Like the Catechism says, by his resurrection, Christ makes us share in the righteousness which he obtained by his death. We're allowed to share in this perfection that Christ attained, and his righteousness is given to us as a free gift. Now when God looks on us, he says, you are my beloved sons and daughters. With you, I am well pleased. Beloved, doesn't that give us great reason for joy? Today we can celebrate and give thanks for this resurrection means that the message of grace you hear is dependable. That means the prayers you offer can go straight to the throne room of God. It means the blessing at the end of this service is something with divine power. As we go from here, we know that the resurrection of Christ has given our lives a new hope, a sure purpose. If the Father didn't raise a son, people should, would and should feel sorry for us. Then we've put our trust in a hoax. We've wasted our lives listening and re-listening to an elaborate fairy tale. Without the resurrection of Christ, what comes of our sacrifices, our prayers, our efforts? Nothing, nothing at all. It just disappears with us into the grave. Maybe you've had moments like this and you start to wonder what it's, what it's all for. Are we just working and working and then we die? Are we just playing church until it's all over? Do my daily efforts as a parent, as an employee, as an employer, as a child of God really make any difference? Is any of this for a purpose? Will it come to anything? Then remember the, the resurrection. Jesus was dead, but he lives. He came back with a promise and a message of hope. You are forgiven. You are precious to God. You have a future, for the grave is not the end. While you live, you have an enduring purpose to serve the risen King. This makes the resurrection of Christ a good thing for us, for us to think about. Don't just ponder it when we get to Lord's Day 17 every year or so, or, or think about it on Easter Sunday but regularly thank God for the resurrection of Christ. He was raised through the promise of God the Father and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's our second point. It's not always clear to us what the Holy, how the Holy Spirit operates. What does it mean that the Spirit was hovering over the waters in Genesis 1? What does it mean that the Spirit came upon Mary to conceive the Christ child in her? We believe these things, yet 
we don't fully understand. In Christ's resurrection too, we wonder how the spirit was at work. Jesus was dead and buried in his grave, but then he was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit. We read in 1 Peter 3, in verse 18, Christ was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. It is said in such a straightforward way, yet how did the Spirit make the Son alive? Just what did the Holy Spirit need to do to make Jesus breathe again on that first day of the week? Perhaps we could picture the resurrection like a scene from 104, Psalm 104. There the psalmist describes the many beauties of God's creation. The psalmist marvels at how the heavenly lights, the clouds, the wind, the mountains, the beasts of the field and forest, the plants, the birds, the creatures of the deep, how they all completely depend on God. And then the psalmist speaks of how the power of God's spirit enlivens this vast project. When you send your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. Notice that it describes how the spirit of God restores the earth. When spring is about to arrive again after a cold winter, God sends the Holy Spirit, and the seedlings push up from the ground, and he calls back the migrating birds and animals. He brings in the warmer winds. The spirit descends again, that all creation may be restored. Perhaps in a similar way, Christ's life was restored by the Spirit. Just as the Spirit renews the earth, so the Spirit renews Christ's lifeless body after those days in the grave. The Spirit descended on him again, this time to revive him. As Peter tells us, Christ was put to death in the body but made alive in the Spirit. Whatever the exact way the Spirit restores him, his results of his work in Jesus were always clear. For even as a child, Jesus was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. We read that in Luke 2. Then when he began his ministry, Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit that he could do this earthly work. Now also in his resurrection, the Spirit empowers Jesus so that he can rise from the dead. This isn't just a theoretical point for us, a point of interest with little relevance. For now that Christ has been raised up by the Spirit, this same renewing Spirit is sent upon us, his people. By his power, the, teacher, the catechism teaches, we too are raised to a new life. Paul puts it this way, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. By his spirit, God has called, out, called us out of our spiritual tombs. You and I have risen from the dead so that we can live truly and fully it sounds impossible, yet we believe it. Why? Because we see its evidence. 
We see the Spirit's resurrecting power when we rise up and embrace Jesus Christ with arms of faith. We see it when we rise up and humbly accept God's word. We see it when we rise up and give thanks to God when we trust in the invisible Father. We see the Spirit's power when we rise up and are willing to serve other people. This is what we read in Romans. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit. The mighty Spirit gives life to our mortal bodies and crooked hearts. We tend to forget that our new life is a miracle, no less a miracle than driving by a cemetery and seeing the gravestones fall over and the tombs break open and the people step forth. It is no less a miracle. Maybe we assume sometimes that God's, that loving God is natural. Or maybe we think because we're not very good at it, there's nothing special about loving or trusting God. Or sometimes we think our children too will believe just because we also always have. But it will, would never happen without the working of the Holy Spirit. Without the Spirit, we are harder and colder than rock. Without him, we're six feet under. But God has made us alive with Christ, even when we are dead, dead in transgressions. It's a resurrecting miracle of the Spirit that makes any of us have faith or love or hope. And if we really see our new life as a miracle, this can have a great effect on our faith. First, it's something that we should make us deeply thankful for God's grace. We ought to realize it again and again that not only by God's grace and the working of the Spirit that we, come, we become what we are. In my desire for holiness, in my growing wisdom, in my patience and meekness, in my quiet trust, I am the handiwork of God the Spirit. This calls us to ceaseless thanksgiving. Second, seeing our new life as a miracle should also make us eager to work with this gift. We want to develop our new life, to continue to grow in the Spirit. He gives us spiritual gifts, so now we want to use them. The Spirit has raised us up to accomplish great things for Christ. I have been resurrected for a purpose. I want to live in Christ, and I want to live for Christ. And third, when we see our new life as a miracle, we should take a reminder of that blessed teaching of the perseverance of the saints. God has started a good work in us through his spirit. You're not perfect. Your faith still has many struggles. But the Almighty Spirit will not quit what he has started. That is a sure promise. Be sure that he will keep you alive and continuously transform you and bring you to completion even until the day of Christ. And that brings us to our third point through the authority of the, of the Son. Think of being given an impossible job. 
like reading a 500-page book in one day or lifting 300-kilogram weight can't be done. You just don't have the, ob- the ability. So can you imagine raising yourself from the dead? Of course not. If you're dead, you will no longer have any ability, any strength, any authority to do anything, let alone loosen the grip of death. But even in his own resurrection, Christ, Jesus had a role to play. Listen to Peter in Acts 2. It was not possible that death should keep its hold on him. Christ could do this because God gave him authority over this realm also. Jesus said this in John chapter 10. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. As Jesus was born by his own choice, and as he died by his own choice, he would rise in the same way. No matter how hard he was beaten, no matter how much he was tortured, no matter how heavy was the stone in front of his tomb, Christ had the earth-shattering ability to raise himself from the grave, He is an eternal priest, Hebrews says, on the basis of the power of the indestructible life. And as man and God, his life, it was indestructible. He shows this power by his own resurrection. And he shows this power in our resurrection. The Catechism says, Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge of our glorious resurrection. Even If we're in our tombs on the day he returns, Christ will not abandon us there. Even if we've rotted beyond recognition, Christ won't let us see decay forever. Think about how already during his ministry, Christ freed people from death. To the synagogue ruler's daughter, Jesus said, little girl, get up. And to the son of the widow of Nain, young man, I say to you, get up. Or to Lazarus, his dear friend, Lazarus, come out. And with just a few words of power, this is what Christ did then, and he will do it again. He will raise us up. We await his return when Christ will show his authority over the tomb once and for all. Paul writes, He himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. By this command, Christ will give us bodies like his own. With just a word, he'll heal all the world's brokenness. With just a word, he'll destroy the last enemy, an enemy who has invaded every home every family, every life. With just a word, Jesus will review his total triumph. With a loud command, the dead in Christ will rise. Again, what would we have without this hope? Without a confidence in Christ, how can we face the ultimate realities? There is a lot of death around us, and some people fear and run one run away in horror. 
Others seem to live seem to live in denial. I won't even think about it. I'll just eat and drink and be merry until it's my time. Still others cling to a false hope. Death is just a part of the big circle of life. We'll live on through our children or we'll come back in some other form, maybe as an eagle or as a salmon. But by God's grace, we can look at death boldly and we can overcome it through the gospel. For we know that the victory is ours. Through being joined to Christ by faith, we have received an indestructible life. Christ was raised up and he will raise us. So we also know that all of our labors in the Lord are not in vain. For in the risen Christ, we have God's promise that he will live with him that we shall live with him forever. Yes, Christ has risen. Hallelujah. Amen. Congregation, in response to what we have just heard, let us rise and sing hymn 32, 1, 2, 3, and 4. And after that, we remain standing for the singing of the Apostles' Creed as we find in him 1A. Sorry, him 1.
Let us bow our heads in thanksgiving. Glorious God and merciful Father, we thank you that you have established your covenant with the believers and their children. You have not only sealed this by holy baptism, but you show it daily by preparing praise to yourselves out of the mouths of children and infants, whereby the wise and the prudence of this world are put to shame. You reveal it also by teaching us your ways and will in Jesus Christ, our Lord. You gave us pastors and teachers to equip the saints for serving you that the body of Christ may be built up. We ask you to continue to work in the hearts of all the children of the covenant, both young and old, in order that, you, that we all may grow in a knowledge of your grace in Christ until we complete, reach complete maturity in him. May we, by your power, not be tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching. Bless our families and endow the parents by your spirit with wisdom from above that they may bring up your, their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We pray for all teaching which is based on your holy word as we have summarized it in the confessions of the church. Be with all who labor in it and provide them with knowledge and wisdom which is rooted in the fear of your name. Put to shame those who are important in their own eyes and in the estimation of the world. May by the godliness of your people, the kingdom of Satan be destroyed and the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and all your churches be strengthened to the glory of your holy name and unto our salvation. All this we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, your son, amen. Congregation, the collection for this service is for the support of Manoa Manor in Langley. After the deacons have done their collection, we will rise and sing our closing song, hymn 32, verses 1 and 2.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.